I'm very concerned for our upcoming election because this voting machine is used in 18 different states, and it's extremely easy to get admin access on this machine. So let me show you how quick it is. About a little under two minutes. All they have to do, this bad actor, would be to open up this machine by pressing this button. Right so in here. the background, you're hearing Rachel Toback. She's a security researcher. And in this video, she's at a hacking conference in Las Vegas called DEF CON. She's about to hack a voting machine. She doesn't need any special equipment except, well. All you have to do is pick this lock here with a ballpoint pen. Open this up. So there's that. You do need a ballpoint pen to break into this voting machine. Welcome to Bots and Ballots from Yahoo News. I'm Grant Birdingham. People have known the voting machine Rachel's going to hack is vulnerable for over a decade. In fact, its source code leaked on the internet over a decade ago. This is the voting machine that voters in Georgia will be going to vote on without any paper backup and without any way to check their votes. So it's loading what, what they call a in November. I've already done a show on how horrified computer experts are with parts of our voting system, but today I'm just going to focus on Georgia, which is the worst state in the country, according to experts. The problems in Georgia are partially technical, but they're also political. And, according to a couple of lawsuits, they could have been fixed by one man, Secretary of State Brian Kemp, who also happens to be running for governor this year. And, okay, and now I have... Full admin access. Under two minutes. Okay. So Rachel has broken into this voting machine. I'll just mention the voting village at DEF CON where Rachel is doing this got quite a bit of press this year, especially after an 11-year-old hacked voting machine there. So this brings us back to Georgia, which, yes, has terrible voting machines, but also has a centralized, unauditable voting infrastructure, part of which sat open on a website through the 2016 election. I have Kim Zetter as a guest today, a journalist who wrote the definitive account of the Stuxnet computer virus and has covered a strange case where a white hat hacker found vulnerabilities the state never fixed. And when they got sued, a server got wiped. And then so did its backup. Then I'm talking to David Cross, a lawyer with one of the lawsuits pending against the state, a final desperate bid to get paper ballots before November so there's something auditable before Georgians go to the polls for 2018. Kim Zetter, thank you so much for joining me on Bots and Ballots. Thanks for having me. So, Kim, we are talking about the election system in Georgia today. A lot of voting experts have said that this is the most vulnerable system in the country. Why don't you tell us what we know about the voting system as it works currently in the state? Well, these are old school voting systems. I call them old school because they are one of the few systems in the country that still don't have a paper trail on them. So these are what are called um, direct recording electronic machines. They're touchscreen machines. They were made initially by Diebold. And Diebold, if you recall, had a lot of bad publicity back in 2004, 2005, when source code for their touchscreen machines was um, exposed online and researchers looked at it and they found a lot of problems with it. As other states realized the security problems with machines, particularly DREs, they passed legislation that required paper trails to be added to the machines. Georgia has very stubbornly resisted that. So that brings us to 2016. Now, I'm going to start this conversation by saying that there is no evidence that any votes were changed in 2016. However, there were some vulnerabilities which popped up, correct? 
What happened in 2016 was that a researcher found out that there was a, a center at the Kennesaw State University campus, the Center for Election Systems. And that center was responsible for sort of overseeing the management of voting machines across the entire state of Georgia. They helped counties program the machines. Uh, They distributed the voter registration database to counties before elections. So a lot of activity was coming out of this tiny, tiny little center. He started looking at their website, and he discovered some files there that he thought he probably shouldn't be able to have access to. He wrote a script. So he ran the script, went went away for lunch, and when he came back, he he discovered that it had downloaded uh, about 15 gigabytes of data. And that turned out to contain the entire list of registered voters in the state of Georgia, so about 6 million. It included some uh, what looked like programming files for um, the Diebold Express poll books. These are not the voting machines themselves, but these are the devices that poll workers use to um, check in the voter and verify that they are eligible to cast a ballot. Um, and there were some other things there. There was a, a, a file there with some county official passwords to get into a server and just um, a lot of other stuff. So Logan, that, the, his name was Logan Lamb, he contacted Kennesaw State University, the, the Center for Election Systems, told them that he was able to get onto this server because it had a vulnerability and it had been a patched or a patch had become available for it back in 2014. And this was two years later. And so, you know, Logan was thinking if he could access these files, then certainly anyone else could. And of course, at that point, you know, news was coming out about the Russian hackers probing uh, voter registration systems uh, through a number of states. So he contacted the Center for for election systems, they said that they would take care of it and patch it. And although they did a partial patch, it didn't actually fix the problem. Logan didn't actually think of it. He just assumed that they did fix it. And several months after the um, 2016 presidential elections, he was sort of at a bar shooting the breeze with a friend, laughing about what he'd been able to uncover. And the friend decided to just see if it actually had been fixed. And of course, it turned out it hadn't. Those files that the center was creating should not have been on a machine that was connected to the Internet. Um, So very easy to subvert an election if you can alter those files. And so there are concerns here, and this is a concern of the people filing the lawsuit, that either in 2016 or possibly any time before then, uh, in other elections, that someone was able to subvert those voting machines in Georgia um, via that center. But this is where the story gets kind of strange because the state hasn't allowed anyone to actually look at these machines to see if they were broken into during the election, right? So after Logan and his um, colleague notified the center that the patch hadn't been fixed, the center had to notify the Secretary of State of what was happening, and the Secretary of State notified the FBI. And they launched an investigation to see if Logan and his colleague had done anything on the server. So they were investigating Logan at that point. They were investigating Logan. There's no evidence that they actually investigated to see if anyone else had uh, hacked the server. So there's the question of this server. Um, The FBI closed the investigation against Logan quickly and determined that he hadn't broken any laws. And a couple of months later, Kennesaw State University then wiped the server, and they wiped a backup of the server. They did that after these activists had filed a lawsuit. The backup of the uh, server was erased at least a month later. 
Regardless of that, there is uh, supposedly a mirror image in the hands of the FBI of that server. And that's what the activists are trying to get their hands on. They want to conduct their own forensic investigation to determine if there were other actors on that server. So, Kim, you wrote what I think is sort of the definitive book on state-sponsored hacking, which is the book about Stuxnet. Why don't you just really briefly tell us what Stuxnet was? Yeah, so Stuxnet was a virus that was created by the U.S. and Israel to sabotage Iran's nuclear program. It infected systems at a a facility in a town called Natanz, or outside of a town called Natanz, where Iran was um, had centrifuges that were enriching uranium hexafluoride gas. And the this code was designed to cause those centrifuges to kind of spin out of control. And the aim of it was to slow down the enrichment program to buy time for sanctions and diplomacy to work until they could get Iran to come to the diplomatic table. There's a couple points which I think are worth mentioning here. One is that Stuxnet was able to jump what what is known in cybersecurity as an air gap. And that's a system which isn't connected to the internet, a lot like the voting systems in Georgia. This is um, a defense that election officials will toss around quite often, is that the voting machines aren't connected to the internet. That's not really true. Many of the voting machines will transmit results to an elections office on election night via a modem, a cellular modem. Someone um, standing between a voting machine and a cell tower can intercept that communication and use that connection, force the voting machine to connect to a malicious device instead of a cell tower, and then hack the voting machine that way, send malicious code to the voting machine. Now, let's say that they actually were completely air-gapped. What Stuxnet showed us, and it was really the first attack that did show us this, was the leaping, as you point out, from a machine that's connected to the Internet to something that's not connected to the Internet. The way that Stuxnet got onto those machines at at this secure facility in Iran was uh, via a USB stick. Attackers infected some workers, and they infected their laptops. And those laptops, but when they finished programming code, they download it onto USB stick and then manually walk it into the secure facility and insert that USB stick into the um, industrial control systems. And that's how Stuxnet sort of walked that air gap to get to the machines. And that's the same thing that someone can do with a voting machine. You know, one of the best ways to attack or to subvert a voting machine in Georgia would be to go after that system that is um, responsible for programming all of those voting machines. And that system, prior to last year, was at this Kennesaw State University Center for Election Systems. So the other way that I think Stuxnet relates here is the power of state-sponsored hacking groups. Stuxnet was programmed more than a decade ago at this point. Who has the power to hack a place like Georgia Well, so Stuxnet was a very complex and sophisticated operation. That's not the same thing with voting machines. Uh, The voting machine software, the source code for the Diebold uh, machines um, was leaked on the internet way back in 2003. The Stuxnet attack required a lot of sophistication. Hacking a voting machine requires much less sophistication. The systems in Georgia run on the Windows operating system, and that's not a a sophisticated system. It's a system that everyone has on their, their laptop that you can study. The bar, I guess, for subverting a voting machine is much, much lower than the bar was for what Stuxnet did. 
it's sort of um, uh, the wrong question to ask who has the ability, because um, there are mercenaries out there who are open to selling the ability. And so just to, if, if North Korea doesn't have the ability homegrown, they can certainly buy the capability from someone else. I think that the, the question here is just access. The ability is there. Obviously, the will is there. The Russians have shown us that. All that's left now is, you know, whether or not machines are secured enough to prevent this and also designed well enough to detect it if someone does subvert a machine. And I would say that the answer on the, both of those counts is no. I guess my last question for you, Kim, is supposing there was some foul play in this upcoming election in Georgia and the computer systems that run the vote or the actual voting machines were breached, what would that look like to an observer? Uh, so you're assuming that we would actually see it. I suppose there are three ways to subvert an election. One is that you actually do it in such a way with code that would work silently and erase itself afterwards so that you wouldn't see any footprints. That's the sophisticated type. And, that, and that's where you want to change votes without anyone actually knowing that you've changed votes. But you can subvert an election simply by planting malware on a machine that doesn't actually do much of anything, but makes it obvious that it's there. And just having that malware on the machine, you've already compromised the integrity of the election and raised questions about what, what else might have been on that machine that you didn't know about. So that's another way to sort of subvert an election through confidence. And then the third way, of course, is to cause disenfranchisement by deleting voter records from the voter rolls so that voters go to the polls and they're told that they're not eligible to vote or they're told that they're at the wrong voting place. And it just creates a lot of chaos and also disruption and a lack of confidence in the election. And that's kind of the problem that we have with elections right now is we have this false sense of security that just because we haven't seen certain things and really we don't have the ability to see certain things, we think that votes haven't been changed. And it really bothers me when election officials say this. I mean, I was, I was sort of yelling about this right after the 2016 election when everyone was asserting that no votes had been changed. No one knows whether or not votes were changed. They don't know whether they were changed in 2016. They don't know whether they were changed in, you know, 2014 or 2000. All of this is meant to ensure that there's no sort of national panic about our elections. I see the value of that on the one hand, but on the other hand, it really undermines our ability to fully secure the elections and election systems. Okay, Kim, thank you so much for joining me on Bots and Ballots. <laughs> You're welcome. After I talked to Kim, I reached out to the office of Brian Kemp, who's the Secretary of State of Georgia. Candace Broch, his press secretary, responded, quote, Georgia's election system is secure, and we continue to work with local, state, and federal officials on election security to maintain and preserve the integrity of our electoral process. There is no evidence that any component of the election system has ever been compromised. Next, we're going to check in with a lawsuit which is trying to force the state to have paper ballots for the 2018 election. David Cross, you are currently suing the state of Georgia. Why don't you tell me what the basis of your lawsuit is? Sure. So we represent uh, pro bono, in fact, uh, because it's a case that we very much believe in. Um, a number of voters in the state of Georgia, uh, including individuals who've been activists in the state in this area for a very long time, 
This particular suit involves the state's use of electronic voting machines that don't uh, have any sort of paper record. And so there's no ability to verify the election results that come out of those machines at the end of the day. So you're trying to get an emergency stay in where there would be paper ballots for 2018. Does it look like that's going to happen? It remains to be seen. The, we filed a motion for preliminary injunction. Essentially what that would do, as you just described, is uh, a federal judge would tell the state that it has to comply with its duties under the existing statutes in Georgia to ensure that the voting system is uh, safe and secure. Uh, and our proposal to do that is providing paper ballots. Uh, will that happen? Unfortunately, it's uh, up to the judge at this point, not us, and it remains to be seen as to what she will do, but we certainly are hopeful uh, that she will recognize the need for this and that sufficient time remains to to do it before the November election. I think this was mostly an abstract worry until, obviously, 2016, and there was a, we, we know that there was some Russian attempts to probe some voting systems, but then it, things changed again with the Mueller indictments. Do you want to talk about that? The Mueller indictments were one of the probably key pieces of evidence and most among the most recent evidence that Russia did actively uh, interfere in the election. And what the Mueller indictments pointed out was, I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 states across the country were the subject of targeting uh, by Russia to actually gain access to election-related systems. And in two of those systems, I think it was Illinois and Arizona, they actually did gain access uh, to uh, certain databases and even stole um, uh, voter information, uh, according to the indictments. And so, you know, the, the state likes to treat our concerns as it calls them hypothetical, characterizes our clients as paranoid. Uh, our concerns are shared at the highest levels of the government. The U.S. Um, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence has encouraged that these types of machines be eliminated the U.S. Intelligence Committee just recently, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, with Dan Coates, the Director of National Intelligence, the Director of Homeland Security, and others, um, acknowledging that Russia is actively engaging in hacking efforts and other interference efforts. And in their words, those efforts are intensifying. So it is, it is far from hypothetical at this point that a system like that used in Georgia is uh, subject of hacking. And in fact, it's uh, probably the most favorable target right now, given the number of voters you have in Georgia, the significance of races there, like the gubernatorial campaign uh, or, uh, contest that's coming up this year. And so there is every reason to believe that Georgia voters uh, will be susceptible to hacking if they don't get some sort of verifiable system, which necessarily involves paper ballots. Has this case gotten stranger as you've been working on it? <laughs> It's gotten stranger in a variety of ways, yes. She said the strangest thing to me is that these issues have been the forefront of election security concerns now for quite some time, a couple of years at least. And inexplicably, the state has done nothing. And that's not an overstatement. They have literally taken no steps to address these concerns and to secure the election. And the only thing that they point to is this commission that the Secretary of State Kemp has created, and it has a clever name, it's called SAFE, but it has literally accomplished nothing in the time that it's been created, and is the only measure that he points to. And you have to just scratch your head while the Secretary of State 
in an election in which he's running for the highest off in the state himself. And so you would think he would be very concerned about an accurate election has literally just done nothing. That is that is the strangest aspect of this case. So Kemp, who uh, in the primary was backed by Donald Trump, and we can assume will be backed by Donald Trump since he's a Republican in the general, um, he's been contemptuous for years of federal attempts to uh, shore up state systems, and um, now he's almost made it an issue to keep Georgia's system how it is. He has made it an issue to keep Georgia's system how it is for this election, and that's what's odd. The state finally issued an RFI, you know, a, re- a request for proposals to uh, replace this system, but not until the 2020 election. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, that request went out you know, right around the time that our, I think shortly after, if I have the timing right, after we filed our motion for preliminary injunction. And perhaps the Secretary of State realized he needed to show the court that he was finally doing something, even though it involves an election that's two years away. Uh, you know, why he has decided to maintain this current election system. So you're down to nine weeks. Realistically, can anything change before Georgian voters go to the polls? Absolutely. And, and the reason is because what we're asking is not a heavy lift. It's not a significant change, contrary to what the defendants would say, because everything that we've asked for is either required or authorized by existing Georgia law. There is a significant erosion of confidence in the election system in Georgia already because voters are aware of the vulnerabilities that exist in this system. They're aware of you know, the virtually unanimous findings that this system is unreliable. So you're telling voters, Secretary of Kemp is telling voters, you know, just sort of hope and pray that your election counts on, on election day. Go on out, use these machines, and there will be no way. There will literally be no way to know if your vote actually counted. Okay, David Cross, thank you so much for coming on Bots and Ballots. By the way, Georgia's voting system has more issues than just cybersecurity. Kemp has been attacked by activists for the mass removal of voters from rolls. A U.S. congressman even suggested a runoff election there last year could have been hacked. And just last week, an official in the state proposed closing voting locations in a rural, mostly African-American county because they didn't have wheelchair access. That proposal was stopped. On background, a Georgia election official told me that the state thinks the paper ballots would be too hard to implement this year and there has never been any evidence that the vote has been hacked. I've got a quick addendum to last week's story, too, which was about the Russian news website operator working in America. After I talked to Alexander Malkovich, I got a reminder about American capitalist surveillance when Facebook suggested I offer Alexander a friend request. That's it for Bots and Bouts this week. Thank you to my guests, Kim Zetter and David Cross, and to Joanna Broder for field recording. Thanks to my producer, Leah Hitchens. Please subscribe to Bots and Ballots on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Grant Burningham. Thank you for listening.